Welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Helen Lewis, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights. My guest today is Dr. Claire Wenham, Assistant Professor of Global Health Policy at the London School of Economics. I first spoke to Claire in March for an Atlantic piece which ran under the headline, The Coronavirus is a Disaster for Feminism. Drawing on her research into previous epidemics of Zika and Ebola, I was pretty downbeat about the effect of COVID-19 and the lockdowns required to contain it on women's working lives. Since then, Claire has received funding to study the gender impact of this particular disease. And at the start of the month, she became a viral star when her daughter interrupted a broadcast interview on the subject. Claire, as I said, we spoke in March. How accurate were your early thoughts about how this would play out? Unfortunately, very, very uh, re- realistic. And we, you know, we're seeing exactly what we saw in, in Zika and Ebola repeat itself. I guess the only difference is that, um, A, it's at a global level and everyone's it's happening to every woman in every country. But also people are talking about it more. That's something I've been really surprised about. I mean, uh, doing research on gender and outbreaks has never been something that really gets any traction in uh, media in policy circles. And suddenly now people are talking about it, which does give me some hope. But at the moment, I haven't seen any meaningful policy change around it. So let's get back to your experiences then. Tell me about what it was like. It was You were in Liberia, that's right, covering Ebola? Uh, so I wasn't in Liberia. I was in, in Brazil looking at Zika. Um, but I mean, it's the in same Zika. story that you see over and over again. And what is it that basically is that you have this outbreak and suddenly everyone goes into emergency mode and everyone then uh, responds, the health system then responds to the crisis at hand. So as we're seeing now in the NHS, you know, everything gets diverted to focus on the emergency. And that means a lot of things that, that were usually happening don't happen. So, um, in Zika, that meant changes to routine health provision. In, in the same thing we saw in West Africa during Ebola, it meant maternal health care, you know, services stopped, people stopped going to have their antenatal checks, women stopped going to hospitals to have babies. And obviously that has that has knock on effects. And we also see it through the um, labor burden that happens. So um, it's normally women who are doing the jobs which are most likely to get affected by outbreaks. So they're the ones who work in hospitality, in restaurants, in the tourism sector. They're heavily feminized industries. And that's when the outbreak happens and changes to normal routine travel patterns or normal life, social life stops. It's those those female dominated industries which are most affected, which means women then are most likely to lose their their jobs. And an interesting um, finding from the West Africa case study was that after the crisis, uh, within 13 months of the outbreak starting, 69% of men were back at work compared to only 17% of, of women. So it takes a lot longer for women to then reintegrate back into the workforce afterwards. And part of that is because of the sectors being just sort of decimated. But the other part of it is because they're also doing all the informal care at home. So they're the ones looking after people who've got Ebola, who've got Zika. We've seen a lot of longer term economic impacts of mothers of children born with Zika who now can't go back to work because they're looking after children with with long term health conditions or simply that until schools reopen, uh, in the case of West Africa, the mums can't go back to work or they're looking after their elderly relatives who've, who've got ill or whatever it might be. And so there's a whole range of short and long term effects that have happened in previous emergencies, which we knew at the start of this emergency, but governments didn't really do too much about. Mm. I have to say, when I wrote that initial piece, there were kind of three strains of responses, um, one of which was, you know, um, there are sort of terrible problems in the developing world, but, you know, pampered Western ladies get over it. 
Um, second one was more men are dying um, uh, of, of COVID-19. So actually, that you know, this is a kind of rebuke to So why are feminists sort of talking about themselves as ever? And yeah, and the third one was that interesting, there's nothing to learn from poorer countries. And I think you saw that in the early response where we talked, I think um, it was one of the government scientific advisors sort of talked about what might be appropriate elsewhere isn't appropriate here. The sort of weird exceptionalism that somehow diseases operate differently in a country that has, you know, warm beer. Um, and I don't know if that's something, you know what I mean? That there was that kind of sense that, well, yes, obviously there is, you know, these, these things are bad elsewhere, but, but this is Britain. <laughs> and you thought, all right, I'll, I hope someone tells the virus that that's, that's good. Thanks for mentioning it. I know. And those, and those three strains are really, those three strands of arguments are just really frustrating because it speaks to this kind of sense of British exceptionalism, which we've seen across the outbreak, not just in gender relations, which I think is very naive. Um, you know, people are losing their jobs as a consequence of outbreaks, like we saw in, in Liberia, like we saw or in Brazil, that's happening here in the UK. And if it hasn't happened yet, it's because of the furlough scheme. But come October, we're likely to see it. And the data we saw uh, from the ONS last week is showing that, you know, more women have lost jobs compared to men thus far. And we're expecting that to then be, you know, amplified in October. So sort of saying it's not going to happen here is just, is just a bit naive from governments, because it is going to happen here. And it is scary. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily because women are not in not in jobs that are needed but for example if you're in a flexible working position if you're in a part-time position it's a lot easier for for employers to make you redundant than a kind of full-time worker so that's why it will happen and and then amplify that on top of the women who've taken um voluntary furlough because of childcare needs and you know effectively saying to their employers you know I need to look after my children and then employers realize their jobs are not essential that also becomes a, a risk point going forward. Um, and then the argument about more men are dying, absolutely, that is important. But that's why you need gender analysis. Gender analysis doesn't just mean women, right? It means men and women and non-binary groups. And understanding those differences is still really important. But I would, I think it's also too early to say, um, might maybe more when men are dying in this acute phase of the actual infection. But I wouldn't be surprised if we look back at this in 10, 20 years, and over the over the, the next five years, more women are affected in other ways, including dying because of longer term effects, because of not being able to access routine maternal health care. So dying of maternal health complications of um, poverty because of the, the widespread poverty we're going to see globally as, on account of this. Um, so I think it's a, a short term look to only look at the men. I was thought that your point about maternal mortality was really interesting because um, in the US, at least, you know, for a developed country that has got very high maternal mortality, and I think double the rate among black women as among white women. So this was something that I thought I felt was going to come out and become a particularly acute problem, as you say, when all medical capacity got diverted away. And sure enough, you know, I've had friends who whose partners haven't been able to come in with them for routine scans, for example. Um, you know, there were people who were genuinely worried that they weren't going to be allowed anybody in with them to to give birth. And again, I thought that was a, an interesting story of an assumption that, you know, that the way, that we're better equipped to handle this than we in fact turned out to be. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of things which have appeared since the outbreak started, which makes me more concerned. I mean, looking at all the, the assessments about the outbreak and the, the black, uh, Asian and minority ethnic communities, which are most, uh, are most predisposed to getting the infection. And we don't know exactly why that is, but it's likely because of exposure and kind of structural racism within 
our society and within the NHS. And that's going to be amplified across being able to access maternal health care services during this outbreak. And so I think it kind of it streams across all sorts of of areas. But I also think it's really silly that we haven't thought about, well, what happened elsewhere. So as you're talking about your friend and, you know, people just not being able to have their partners with them when they go to their scans or when they go and have uh, have birth, that's that's obviously very upsetting for that couple. But we can also learn from other outbreaks. So the DRC, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, had an Ebola outbreak last year. And one of the things they found was actually that not only did some services for maternal health care stop, but actually the ones that kept going, women weren't going to them because they were scared. They thought going to clinic was a, a site of potential transmission of Ebola and they didn't want to get Ebola. And they'd rather take their chances, you know, having a having a birth without an attendant than they were going to a clinic. And the government just said, oh, well, hang on a second, let's just move the maternal health clinic. And they moved them into schools and community centres because actually they found that people weren't scared of going to those places. It was the hospitals. And because most of antenatal care, for example, isn't high tech, you don't need lots of equipment. That was quite an easy thing to do. And that would be something that we could quite easily do in the UK, for example. You know, during the outbreak, if no one was using schools, well, why couldn't we have moved some non-essential services that didn't need the high tech equipment, but gave women a lot of support into these non-clinical spaces? And that's a kind of that's that's one of the things that put it exceptionalism that we haven't been thinking about what happens else in the world. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to try and think about what in five or 10 years we'll realise that happened during this crisis. So the fact that there was such a dramatic drop in people reporting to A&Es with, you know, um, heart attacks and strokes, um, you know, we still don't know what the long term effect is on, say, cancer patients who whose treatment was delayed, you know, and you know, not on a life-threatening level, but on a, a heart-rending one, you know, women whose IVF was was delayed or, or cancelled as a result of this. There's, there's all these kind of things that, you know, because the focus has so much been on the acute phase, we just haven't kind of fully come to terms with it. I think it's particularly interesting when you try and think about the psychological effects of all of this. There's not just the psychological effects of lockdown, which I think will turn out to have affected a lot of people very deeply, but all these other different health effects all the people who didn't get to say goodbye to their dying relatives I think is another one that we really haven't come to terms with how many people that has that has traumatized absolutely and you know we, we've been doing research during the outbreak um, surveying women about um, and men about how they're feeling about everything and and the thing that's been most alarming to me I think has been the the rates of people reporting mental health concerns and anxiety and some of that is about fear of getting the getting infected with coronavirus some of it's about just trying to manage doing your full-time paid job at home and look after children at home and the kind of you know the stress that that brings and some of it's about just you know not not you know worried about being able to pay your bills worried about being able to pay your mortgage um we're seeing lots of, of families you know being plunged into poverty we're seeing you know increased use of food banks and you know the stress of, of, of the kind of financial worries and i think there's going to be even more of these going forward these kind of unknown mental health concerns, uh, let, let alone just kind of how difficult it is mentally to be locked in your house for four months on end. Yeah, I think particularly in that early phase for people who didn't have a garden or outdoor space and didn't have access to their informal childcare networks, you know, they couldn't get their grandparents in to help out. That wasn't, that's an incredibly heavy burden to ask of people. And I think it, it's, it's felt I think one of the things that always worries me is the way is when journalists and politicians don't live the way that m most people are living. 
Um, and I think it, it affects politics reporting in all kinds of different ways. And one of those ways during this was that those people's lives, to some extent, continued as normal, you know, in the sense that they kind of went in to work. They say were doing very odd things. But 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 the idea that, you know, you're just not living through the same crisis as everybody else to some extent. Um, I think is is a real is a really big problem because when you you know when you just intuitively things aren't part of your experience you're kind of sometimes very often not aware that they're not part of your experience. I remember talking to an MP who said, "I think I'm very worried about the fact that we don't seem to realise that not everybody's got a garden um, because you know the majority of the, the Tory party have got at least you know one house that's got a garden if not two." Um, but tell me a bit about your your research that you're doing now. So, I mean, just to go on to that, I think that's a, just to go back with what you were just saying, I think that's a really important point. And I think, again, when we're thinking about the kind of socioeconomic determinants of health, so such as we such as I mentioned before about the the racial divides around who's getting infected, that's also highly correlated with, you know, who's got outdoor space and who's living in a council block in an inner city that, ha- that when parks are shut, they can't even go to to go anywhere outside. So I think that's a really important point. So at the moment, what we're doing is we're doing a multi-country case study to try and document the gendered effects of the coronavirus outbreak. And so what we're looking at is not just the, the, the direct health effects and, you know, who's getting infected more, but also looking at those downstream effects, which we know disproportionately affect women. So looking at women's economic empowerment, looking at who's doing the formal and informal care, looking at issues around access to healthcare resources, looking at domestic violence, and just trying to get a hold on how is the how are the policies that are designed to respond to the outbreak that governments are making uh, aren't that aren't necessarily considering men and women as different and aren't considering the differential experience of gendered roles within the response to the outbreak. Well, let's pick up on domestic violence, because I think that's something that you mentioned to me all the way back in March now. Um, and and as expected, you know, we have had charities reporting big spike in calls to helplines, and they're expecting as kind of lockdown eases and it becomes easier for people to to seek help that there will be, you know, there'll be greater demand. The government's announced £76 million pounds to, to go to refuges and trying to reopen some spaces and actually get, provide some new spaces. But but why would domestic violence rise during lockdown? Well, we know that most domestic violence happens in the home. That's That's a given before any outbreak happens. And so then when an outbreak happens and you all get told to stay at home, then, and you add to the stress of that, not being able to go to work, worries about uh, your economic security, whether, you, whether you're going to have your job at the end of this, being stuck in a, a house or, or a flat with, with small children as well. You can see that tensions will rise and home isn't the safe space that people think it is, not for everyone. And so that's not that surprising. What's been surprising is how ubiquitous it's been. I mean, we've seen these these reports from across the world with alarming statistics. I mean, in Colombia, it's up to like 91% increase on, on these domestic violence hotlines. And we also know that that's just a proxy indicator because most people, when you're still in lockdown, you're not calling those numbers because you don't want to risk your abuser hearing you call. So we think this is even, this is just the tip of the iceberg. And actually, the numbers are going to be much more much more alarming when we, if if we're ever able to get the accurate numbers on it right and that i mean that leads me on to asking you about where we sit in the kind of well, exactly a league table but you know in terms of having taken into account gendered impacts and these unequal impacts of both the pandemic and the lockdown how 
Where does the UK sit internationally? Pretty badly, I think, is the answer, unfortunately. I mean, I think the government just hasn't thought about it. I mean, I think the, you know, the coronavirus task force, uh, five men, uh, says one thing about what they think about it. And even when we've been trying to sound the alarm bell and as have you and lots of journalists, it doesn't really seem to create any change. The only real progress that we've seen uh, around this has been the announcement of some money for domestic violence. But again, it was quite haphazard. It kind of, it didn't really, didn't really follow a, a strategy. Uh, and, and there's been no broader considerations of the gendered effects. I mean, the furlough scheme obviously has a lot of support for parents in general, for example, being able to take furlough for care needs. But what's going to happen next? And is it a kind of uh, a false sense of security that actually we're just, we're just pushing the problem down the road? But there's been very little thought about all the other gendered issues which which come through. Um, you know, why is no one thinking seriously about the childcare sector, for example, which was on the brink of collapse prior to the outbreak? And almost certainly we're going to see huge amounts of closures of childcare facilities going forward because they just simply can't afford to run. Um, and why are we not thinking about social care? Uh, you know, we've done lots of clapping for carers, but it hasn't really meaningfully changed into any government policy, right? It hasn't meaningfully changed into increased pay or increased um, resource for these carers who you know, by their very nature, have been deemed the key workers and the essential workforce we need in our society to function. And yet we're not recognising that in any policy shift around this. And I think if you compare it to other countries, I mean, you know, Germany has released this um, family incentive scheme where they're going to give families money. They're very much looking for a, a care response focused on the kind of care economy and making sure that the social care sector has and the childcare sector is well funded to be able to allow parents to go back to work, for example. Um, and so there's lots of other countries that are doing things differently to us. And, you know, and, and meanwhile, the UK government decided to stop gender pay gap reporting in March just after we spoke. You know, and they're kind of doing things to actively be regressive towards gender equality rather than progressive. I think it's quite hard to do international comparisons because you have to say that some people seem to, you know, some countries seem to have had lucky escapes to some extent they maybe haven't had so many people in initially in sort of seeding the virus in in the early days but you can definitely say that some countries have obviously given you know if even if you equalize everything else seem to have done incredibly badly I think Brazil is a very obvious example of that the US unfortunately which is obviously where most of my colleagues are located it's you know trying to read reports from what's happening there is is genuinely horrifying and and in both cases I would say it's very much attributable to poor governance um you know mixed messages from the top a lack of you know experts being listened to you know leaders in both bolsonaro and trump who are pushed this sort of you know real men don't wear masks kind of it's just the flu walk it off kind of um mad approach to 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 politics um and and i wouldn't say that i would entirely tar boris johnson with that brush but i think certainly there was a kind of instinctive casualness about it's you know let's not get this let's not blow this out of proportion don't be a kind of bunch of nervous nancies and also the idea that you know actually one of the things I think I I I got wrong during this is that I went along with the idea I thought think of you know lockdown fatigue that this idea that came up early on that you had to not lock down too early because people would get tired of it and actually 
doesn't look like that's really the case. It looks like people are, you know, the the majority of people are more up for mask wearing, lockdown restrictions than um, than politicians ever really considered that might be the case. Now, I don't know what you think about that and whether or not is that entirely related to the furlough scheme and the fact that we made it so that it was possible for people to feel empowered not to go into work in dangerous situations. I mean, I don't. I think I think it's too early to say, which is the kind of cop out answer. I think it's too early to really understand all of that. But I also think that they're again, and kind of going back to what I said at the start, this assumption that British people can't lock down, for, you know, can only last for two or three weeks. This this reliance on kind of you know behavioural economics that we saw um, in behavioural science, it was was a bit misguided thinking that we'd be different to any other country in the world, right? And, you know, we're, we're all humans. So if we can lock down in, in Wuhan for, you know, a month on end, why did we think that the UK could only lock down for two weeks? You don't know that until it's, until you, you do it. And if you've got good leadership and you've got a, a good, um, societal cohesion and a good, uh, social contract between the population and the, the government, then there's no reason you should be able to. I guess the risk in the UK was it was coming, you know, the outbreak arrived at a time where we don't have full social cohesion with the government because of the the Brexit question and the the great division we've got across the UK, which is a similar division that you've got across the US and across Brazil. You know, it's heavily divided societies. I guess we're just a kind of a lesser extent of those. Um, But, you know, what's happening in Brazil is just, it's just horrifying the the lack of federal leadership the lack of any responsibility being taken for you know 2 million infected and over 80,000 dead and again there's a heavily gendered issues i mean the, the first person to die of coronavirus in brazil was a female domestic worker and you know the richer employer who were able to travel to europe who picked it up who brought it back to brazil and infected you know their house cleaner effectively and and you know obviously that brings up a whole range of issues around uh, informal care and formal care and social economic divide and then you know those carers then tend to live in poorer areas some in favelas and you know places where there's just it's not possible to do social distancing because there's so many people living in cramped conditions you know you can't wash your hands because there is no running water and so it kind of it then just just, you know, sets on fire and just spreads rapidly and, and you can't stop it. Um, and the government, mm-hmm. it seems to be unwilling to take efforts to stop it using the healthcare workers that, that it has, which is just absolutely terrifying. Um, that is one of the things that has slightly cheered me about our response here, actually. Um, as you say, the, the response in Brazil in terms of sexual reproductive health has been very bad. And in the US, there was immediate, you know, moves to restrict abortion as every you know, crisis in the US is an excuse for some Republicans to to try and restrict abortion access. Whereas here we had Matt Hancock announcing the expansion of the ability to take the um, abortion pills at, at home. And it is one of those, I think it's been really interesting to kind of look across the piece. And actually, there are some things that Britain has handled better than I thought it would. Um, the universal credit system, for example, which I have long um, had issues with, um, didn't seem to buckle on the strain. I think it will now become very unpleasant as um, sanctions and conditionality are, are restored. I think that you know we're about to have a huge unemployment spike at a time when people are going to find out that our unemployment benefits are not the land of milk and honey they're occasionally presented as, but in fact incredibly um, stringent in their requirements on what people are, are made to do in order to keep claiming them. 
Um, but are there other places where the UK has done well in gender impacts? Well, I think I think you've mentioned two of them just there, and I think the the changes that that Matt Hancock made around access to medical abortion in the home was really, uh, you know, a credit to thinking logically, right? That there were going to be lots of women who were, who wanted an abortion uh, during lockdown who either would not do it because they don't want to go out, they don't want to risk getting infected, or they're not able to get out and they're not able to travel because changes to transport or whatever to access uh, a clinic. And so I think that was a really easy step, which is well evidence-based. And there's been, you know, decades of research to show that the outcomes are the same for doing a, performing a medical abortion at home or in a clinic. Uh, I think the question will be, does it last? Or is this a temporary measure that will get reverted as soon as the crisis is over? I think the furlough scheme is also something we need to give the government credit for. I mean, not every country released this ability to, you know, give people their earnings up to £2,500 a month. Um, I think that's a real credit to being able to move that so swiftly. I mean, yes, there are problems with it. Yes, I think it's, um, you know, alarming that it's going to fall off a cliff edge and there's kind of a false sense of security in it. But at a time of crisis when there wasn't necessarily time to think through the longer term implications, they mobilised the money and were able to to do this, to to support people across across the board. Um, and so I think, you know, you have to give government credit for, for that. Um, yeah, I think it's something that governments always feel very aggrieved about is the fact that if you do things right, people don't notice them. Like the absence of a huge crisis in the furlough scheme and, um, you know, and the fact that they didn't get relatively swiftly towards um, support for self-employed people means it's the kind of the dog that didn't bark, right? Is, is no one ever writes about things that are just running quite smoothly and undramatically. But I mean, that's um, that's the story of public health, though, right? You never hear about public mm-hmm. health, you never hear about outbreaks. And so you don't really know what they do, because if they're doing their job right, you don't ever hear about any potential health crisis. Um, and that's kind of why people are like, oh, well, why? who are these people? We've never heard of them before. Well, because they've been, you know, tracking outbreaks and implementing public health measures to to prevent outbreaks from coming here. And it's all happens in the shadows and they're a victim of their own success. Yes, I always think that the worst, you know, it, there's lots of these roles in public life that don't like being a goalkeeper in that people only notice you really and when you've cocked something up. Um, and it, it, it's, it's a hard thing to, you know, to, to deal with, I think, and, and a hard thing to write about as a journalist to try and not only write about bad things, failures, because otherwise you, I think, particularly risk giving people the impression that it's all hopeless and there's nothing you can do. Um, I was watching someone talking about climate change last night on the news about polar bears dying. And they said, well, but of course, if we change the way we act, we can avert this crisis. And I think that's something that I felt very strongly needs to be part of the reporting that I do, which is that there are lots of very smart people working in subjects like this. Like, you know, there are, there are, there are researchers like you, there are people in public health positions who are, you know, whose ability to understand and inform us about this stuff is is and can make a measurable impact in how, you know, we do stuff. And we shouldn't kind of succumb to just despair and, and apathy, right? And, and I saw you saying that you felt quite optimistic about what the changes that were going to come out of this crisis. Well, so I think that there's a difference there. So, you, you know, you have lots of researchers working across the board on all things to do with this outbreak. And I think the difference is, do, do, does anyone listen to it? I mean, there's 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 reams of research on every topic under the sun, and and a lot of this outbreak, a lot of the impacts of this outbreak, 
were well predicted prior to this outbreak, right? We knew that there was going to be an outbreak that emerged in China. We knew that it was going to cause tensions with our China being transparent. We knew it was going to cause tensions with not having the money to respond to it quickly. We knew it was going to cause wide societal disruption and, and economic chaos and that those would fall disproportionately on women, on um, lower um, socioeconomic groups. Uh, and no one really listened. And it's whether governments start listening and when they start listening. And that has a lot to do with kind of who's in the room, right? And who gets invited to these meetings. And one of the things we've seen in the UK, for example, is that, you know, we saw an expansion of SAGE. So initially, SAGE was quite a small group, mainly of modelers, epidemiologists, and um, behavioral scientists. And, you know, I take my hat off to their expertise and they obviously were the right people but i think as the outbreak's gone on we've they've expanded sage to include a broader group of people but i think they haven't quite gone far enough and i think we need to have more uh groups or individuals with certain expertise such as a gender advisor such as a uh, you know anthropologists and sociologists and political scientists and economists because because uh, the outbreak the, you know, almost the outbreak is just the start of it, right? It's the longer term knock on effects that need a different type of expertise and need other people's voices and opinions to make sure the government uh, are thinking more strategically for the long term. Yeah, I totally agree. That was Dr. Claire Wenham, Assistant Professor of Global Health Policy at the London School of Economics. Listeners, you can get a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday morning. And on Wednesdays, there's the main roundtable podcast with a full panel. So do subscribe on your favorite apps. You can get the podcast without adverts too, plus smart Bunker merchandise when you support the Bunker on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to back the podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Bunker Daily was presented by Helen Lewis and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>